let's get to your experience in the Trump administration and the individual uh, mandate and your your very effective uh, repeal of it. I think you generally understood, for those who were there, you're the reason why the individual mandate was ultimately uh, repealed and as part of tax reform. So you arrive in the Trump administration and the National Economic Council as a special assistant to the president. You're working for Gary Cohn. You're excited. You've worked how many years for repeal and replace? And what's your initial reaction? Give me your first week or two. I didn't arrive until March. Yulin's still on the Hill. What is Brian Blaze's reaction the first couple weeks that he's part of the administration? Um, honestly, it was uh, it was uh, mostly uh, frustration. So um, the process was terrible that had been put in place. There was not a process to build um, consensus within the party on on what was going on. It was really top down driven, and we were just getting things to top down from who? From Trump? From, from no. The Hill? So the, I think so. President Trump. Um, uh, was not a details guy on uh, Obamacare and health policy. I think he um, probably quite understandably thought Republicans have been campaigning on this. They've been talking about Obamacare for um, a decade. Uh, I'm going to sign whatever they come up with, right? It's good. They're going to come up with something. I'm going to sign it, and then we'll move on to, to trade and tax, which are the areas that President Trump really cared about. Um, so uh, there was uh, deference to Paul Ryan, the Speaker of the House, and I think Tom Price, who was his HHS secretary, and I think President Trump thought, well, Tom Price, chairman of the Budget Committee in the House, medical doctor, he's got his own plan out here. They're going to have something um, that's going to be ready to, ready to go. But it wasn't ready to go. Like the party had not – like coming up with legislation and passing legislation when you know the legislation is going to get vetoed is a different exercise than um, when it's real game time uh, go. And there needed to be time to build consensus within the party and ultimately figure out what you had 50 votes in the Senate to get. Because that's what we should have done is whatever we had 50 votes in the Senate for. And so part of the first three months, uh, legislative agenda on the Hill was designed expressly to give Congress time to develop that policy. Those 17 different efforts to undo Obama-era regulations, those votes up on the Hill, mm-hmm. combined with confirming the president's cabinet, was explicitly put out to give about three months ability of Congress and the administration, hopefully with governors and other stakeholder input, the ability to come up with a replace plan that could command a majority of the House and Senate. Instead, the House puts a package forward that it can't pass month after month, week after week, day after day, and just gets but, stuck. But you're in, the, you're in the administration. You must have assumed uh, we're going to have our own plan. We're going to have the ability to develop a plan. You're in the White House. You're a special assistant to the president. You're at the National Economic Council. It's like a dream job for somebody like you. Yeah. And your quickly your hopes dreams aspirations are being lit on fire by the fact that the trump administration can't run a decent process you'd run a policy process and there was this deference to the hill where guys like you are supposed to solve our problems and it doesn't happen right so the whole spring is really sort of a a nightmare um you're looking for allies you're trying to make whatever the hill is considering better 
Uh, I got there in March of the first week in March of, of 2017. But in, until then, uh, and we were working, I think the first thing we started working on was Medicaid growth rates, for God's <laughs> sakes. Um, you must have been very, very frustrated and discouraged about the decision you had made and the fact that the party was about to squander this opportunity. I, when I got offered the position, you're right. I mean, it was a dream job given um, what I what I wanted to do to reform Obamacare, to to look at reforming the health entitlement programs, and um, I didn't know what I was getting into. Right, so I'd never served in a White House before. I hadn't served in the executive branch before. I knew the policy on Obamacare and what we wanted to do. But yeah, I mean, I thought that's what. When I got in, like, the first day, I wanted to, like, bring the uh, key folks in from the House and Senate and to, to coordinate and, and see where we were. But I was already sort of late to the game because um, the transition team um, had sort of worked out how this was how this was going to happen. And I think, the like, to Eric's point, House leadership developed this legislation, and it was a – you have two options. You support this. And you, uh, what we call Obamacare, repeal and replace, which actually preserved uh, an enormous part of Obamacare, which was one of the frustrations um, uh, that I had. Um, Or Obamacare's uh, the law of the land. So when they introduced the legislation and they gave us some, uh, uh, you know, we had a big meeting in uh, in the vice president's ceremonial office where the House came in and, and briefed us on the legislation. And we raised lots of questions. And they were like, "Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna go live with this um, in a couple of days." And we're like, "You, it's a that's a mis- that that's a mistake." Um, I mean, that was my perspective as a sort of conservative working on this and thinking through how are conservatives going to feel about um, uh, about this legislation. And the day that it was introduced, Democrats didn't criticize it because Republicans had formed a circular firing squad and were just shooting at each other. And it was just a terrible way for the administration um, to start off. Democrats couldn't have been much happier with with that outcome, that we had caught the car, the the proverbial dog who caught the car, and immediately uh, are surprised by that and have no plan on how to deal with it. It it was going to be challenging too, Joe, as you know, because, I mean, Obamacare extended a lot of uh, goodies and subsidies and new spending. So a lot of the health care special interest groups were all going to lobby in favor of the status quo and just wanting more. Like they they came in like, you know, the health insurance company said, what we really need for Obamacare is just more money. So we need more reinsurance money. We need more risk corridor. We just need more money. And that will help stabilize the market. We're like, well, that doesn't address the problems that are going on here. Like, that's uh, why do you keep coming in and telling me you want more money? That's that's not useful. Okay. But we could have taken some time to like get like businesses, like small businesses, um, uh, maybe broaden the playing field, like to uh, to really um, uh, take our time and develop the product and get consensus within the party. Like, it's a huge deal to use reconciliation realizing you're not going to have any Democratic support um, to undo a major expansion of government. And I don't— That's just one-sixth of the economy. Yeah. Yeah. So then that's a heap, a burning dumpster fire. Healthcare reform is is a failure. Uh, you're discouraged. Anybody who worked on it was discouraged and who had, who had thought that they, it was within the party's grasp to get this done. President Trump, Paul Ryan, Speaker of the House, then pivot to tax reform, right? Um, Talk about how you explained 
in the White House, the significance of the individual mandate, and you got that thrown into tax reform? Um, well, they're looking for, you know, one of the things they're looking for is pay force because um, uh, they want to reduce taxes elsewhere. And the thing with the individual mandate penalty, uh, I said CBO assumed that um, too many people had coverage because of the individual mandate penalty. Well, then they also assumed that too many people had subsidies um, uh, because of the individual mandate penalty. Um, so if you remove um, uh, the individual mandate penalty, you're going to remove a lot of people that have subsidies. So you're able to um, uh, uh, get some savings there uh, by removing the individual mandate penalty that you can apply for, for broader tax reform. So that was one of the points that I made. The other point was just to say, you know, people aren't going to be harmed if you remove the individual mandate penalty. Like, it's not going to worsen um, the overall individual market. Like, these concerns about adverse selection are... Um, that, that some people were raising are uh, exaggerated. So you can really remove the individual mandate penalty. It's not bringing people into the market. Um, uh, so we're really just penalizing uh, low and middle income uh, people uh, who are making the decision that they can't afford this, um, uh, this Obamacare coverage. Um, so, so how big was it? Was it 140, 140 billion? What, what was the value of the individual mandate? Do you remember off the top of your head or Elon, do you remember? It's more than that. It's, it was more than that. But to Brian's point, the subsidization assumptions for CBO were also big numbers as well. But ultimately, when the individual mandate is finally repealed, none of these predictions from CBO ever came true. That's right. Not a one, which demonstrated both the flaws in CBO's model as well as the flawed politics of how we were approaching the issue there at the beginning of 2017. So you gave, you gave free money cost-free with no downstream policy uh, bad effects to the Trump administration and to Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell to get tax reform done, all because you were the one guy in the room on the National Economic Council who understood health care and taxes, and you gave Gary Cohn uh, you know, seven-digit uh, billions of dollars to do tax reform. Americans no longer required to buy health insurance or get hounded by the IRS and pay a penalty. But through tax reform and expanding job opportunities and not just job growth, but job improvement, allow individuals to go out and get their own health care insurance or be employed in a business that gives them health care yeah. insurance coverage. So that's the way to to have approached the, the coverage challenge in this kind of multi-decade debate that Democrats and Republicans had about health care at the federal level should only be a conversation about how best to expand coverage rather than how to improve health coverage, health care. So I, st I still remember the whiteboard. Uh, I drew the uh, the economics of the neutral mandate on Gary's whiteboard at one uh, of our morning meetings. We would have an AEC staff meeting every morning um, so that he could then explain it um, when he was in the principal meetings. And Eric, to, to, to your comment, you know, we know what Obamacare has done. It has not increased private health insurance coverage. Despite all those subsidies, private health insurance coverage is flat. What Obamacare has done is expand the Medicaid program. So, you know, Stuart Butler at the Brookings Institution has referred to Obamacare, uh, which is, you know, the Affordable Care Act, as the Medicaid Expans Expansion Act, because that's mostly what it's been, is just expanding a Medicaid program that has, you know, enough problems that we could devote an entire podcast to problems with the Medicaid program. So, but before you got to uh, tax reform, 
to, <laughs> to Joe's point. This is a flaming dumpster fire. Congress tries, House ultimately staggers through and passes something. The Senate takes a couple bites at the apple. Ultimately, the whole thing is killed with a thumbs down vote from John McCain out on the floor of the Senate late on July night. Congress and everybody wants to move to, to tax reform, but there is still this lingering effort to try something on repeal and replace. Yeah. Talk, if you could, for a minute about that behind-the-scenes food fight going on where most of the public and most of the members and most of the administration have moved ahead, yet there's this lingering effort to try yet still another effort to revive. So I've got to tell you, Eric, this was uh, the most fun that I had when I worked oh, yeah. in the White House was this time. So and largely because, you know, everyone else, like you said, had given up. But there were some of us that were like, well, the reconciliation instructions don't expire until the end of September. We still have two and a half months. You know, we tried this approach, uh, which was, you know, largely to rejigger um, Obamacare's tax credits. How about we try a different approach that's based on federalism, that's based on um, the idea that we're going to take this money, we're going to return it to states and let states have more flexibilities to set up their own programs uh, to subsidize health coverage for, you know, lower income people, uh, people with expensive medical conditions. So that effort in the Senate was led by Senators Cassidy, um, of Louisiana and Senator Graham of South Carolina. And I had, and actually former Senator Rick Santorum uh, had gotten very involved with this effort as well. So my team and, and Joe's team uh, at OMB was pretty helpful uh, during this period as well. But we started working with those um, uh, Senate offices and um, developing legislation um, uh, that would, you know, that would sort of allow states this greater flexibility. Now, one of the th key things involved there was building a model for distributing um, the Obamacare money um, among the states. And that model was built by my team at the National Economic Council. So I had two uh, brilliant um, uh, young guys uh, working with me uh, who you know, built this model and uh, uh, we were getting close. Like we were having meetings on the Hill, um, to, at least from my perspective, mm -hmm. we were getting some momentum. We were meeting with folks on the Hill. Um, there was uh, socialization. Uh, it eventually became that leadership uh, uh, was aware of what was going on with Graham Cassidy. Uh, President Trump was supportive of the effort. Uh, Senators Graham and Senator Cassidy would meet with him. Um, now, changing that formula was a lot of a lot of work, and goes to uh, one of the other problems with sort of just the federal health policy is that some states get so much money from Washington for their health care programs, and these are a lot of these are like really uh, liberal states like New York that have grown like massive Medicaid programs. Um, so part of the, the benefit of this was we were going to equalize sort of the federal financing across the country. Red and, and treat red states more fairly. Correct. Yeah. So unfortunately, you know, um, uh, that collapsed as well. And, and Senator McCain said he wouldn't support any efforts to use reconciliation for health care. So he, had, he, he wanted to go through regular so order. So the doors kind of slammed at that yeah. point, yeah, to your point, regular order, which required 60 votes in the Senate. So this really exciting, invigorating leading time ultimately has to end. But we have a collapsed health care agenda. Congress wants to move on and do taxes, and, and so does the administration. So how do you 
ultimately take the baton? How does the administration grab the baton on a health agenda, given the failures that those first nine months had really demonstrated about the ability of Congress to produce uh, a health care system for the 21st century? It was a pretty, it was a pretty depressing time, uh, quite frankly. And, uh, you know, what? because uh, we, we were all sleep deprived. I mean, we'd just gotten through and we're working till, you know, midnight and coming in early in the morning. And actually, I mean, Joe... Uh, um, uh, Joe was a great uh, colleague and friend to have at that point in time because he would come in and we could we could laugh and, and try to you know hand out the antidepressants yeah yeah um, uh, so, so it's it's a deep down and, and dreary moment yet from there over the course of the next three years the two of you drive and build a very significant health agenda for the president what happened so President Trump um, when uh, the when it became clear that Graham Cassidy was not going to be able to get across the finish line by the end of September, he, you know, exited the White House. He was going off to Marine One. So Marine One is the you know helicopter that, that takes the president to Andrews Air Force Base, um, and it you know is revving its engines on the South Lawn. And he would often like to do these press gaggles uh, where he would go back and forth with the press. Um, they were always, you know, you didn't know what uh, what was going to come out of those because the president would often be very candid. Um, so, and the reporters would spend time coming up with wide-ranging set of questions to try to trigger wide-ranging answers. So at this one, um, the president was asked, uh, what's next for health policy? And he said, well, we're not giving up. Um, and uh, uh, I actually have an executive order. And the executive order is going to allow uh, people to buy across state lines. It's going to expand association health plans. It's going to have other great things. And I'll be signing it uh, very soon. Was um, there such an executive order? Uh, no. Uh, so not exactly. Yeah. Uh, so the Tell president, um, uh, I, when I heard that, I actually got really excited because really? I, NEC, um, we had crafted a pretty generic executive order. And executive orders, um, what they do is their direction from the president to federal departments and agencies. So they don't actually pull off the policy. Right. They just set the policy course and direction. Right. And they're saying here, you know, you should, when you're doing policy and regulations, we want you to make sure you're, um, you know, Elevating take, this or exactly. taking that out. Right. So we wanted to expand consumer choice and increase market competition. So the executive order was called enhancing um, uh, choice and competition across the U.S. healthcare sector, um, and it was pretty generic. It was um, just sort of had some principles, some problems with the healthcare sector, and it called for um, the uh, federal departments with jurisdiction over healthcare to issue a report um, uh, with recommendations. So what we did when we heard that the president. Um, uh, said he had an executive order to sign is that with we had been doing some regulatory work on policies that we could modify and that were at various stages there's a lot of there's a lot of inertia with the bureaucracy and a lot of risk aversion within the bureaucracy and what that executive order did was allow us to overcome uh, that uh, that bureaucratic. Yeah, wait, resistance. I think you're giving yourself. I think you're you're not giving yourself enough credit. I mean, the president walks out. He says this to Marine One. I think it's fair to say that nobody really knew what he was talking about. I mean, and the and inside they were, the administration, inside the administration, people are calling. What is the president? My staff is calling me at OMB. People are calling from HHS. You're getting calls. The Domestic Policy Council, uh, which I didn't run at the time, but would would later on. They didn't know what he was talking about. 
And you had an executive order pretty much ready to go that could fulfill, make the president's promise a reality, turn him from a boaster into a deliverer on this. And and that's how your executive order got taken because nobody else had anywhere to go. Nobody else had an executive order ready to go. You had done work on this with your staff. And so, boom, suddenly Brian Blaze, his ideas are the uh, president's health care agenda in the post-ACA, Obamacare, repeal and replace, disaster, failure. Yeah. Um, so, so, uh, so, and we put in three policies uh, that we had some pretty good indication that we could take action on and, and get federal rules changed around. So when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about those three policies as well as, Joe, everything else that the president did as the health agenda moved from repeal and replace to (laughs) rescue and replace. All right. 